Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albatelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 124. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash theweekindoubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I should warn you before we get started that I'm recording this late at night, so you may hear the incessant chirping of New England crickets uh, in the background, and you may also hear the uh, occasional grunt or snore coming from my chihuahua. Just consider it ambiance, I guess. All right, Twitter shoutouts. Aquathin, it looks like. Geeky, nerdy, techno freak. Loves movies, music, podcasts, and anything science-related. Then we have Locke at Atheist1234. I stand for science, logic, human, LGBT rights, and secularism. Husband, father, software engineer, vet, Afghanistan. It looks like two tours. Dog rescuer, hashtag atheist, hashtag atheism. Then we have Harry Britt. Politics from the left, anti-theism, critical thinking, psychology, queer activism, former pastor from Texas, whoa, followed Harvey Milk on SF, must be San Francisco board, that's pretty intense, former pastor, wow, and followed Harvey Milk, guy sounds legendary. Also, I guess I'll give a quick shout out to, uh, that didn't sound too heartfelt, I guess, Uh, but it is heartfelt. I'd like to give a, a shout out once again to regular listeners uh, Heresy, and uh, also Buzzwigs for chiming in regularly on the uh, Weekend Out Facebook page and uh, giving me uh, moral support and letting me know that they're still listening. And I'd also like to thank good St. Crocoduck <laughs> for um, letting me know he's out there listening as well and always giving me retweets and sharing uh, helpful links and things like that. And Crocoduck actually got me into Robert M. Price's Bible Geek podcast. And it's a great podcast. I almost felt this selfish impulse all of a sudden, like as I was mentioning it. Don't mention the competition, <laughs> but hey, we're a community here. And uh, Robert M. Price is, um, I believe he's a, he's an admitted uh, atheist. I don't know if atheist is his label of choice, but he's a uh, non-believer, but he's also an extremely talented and knowledgeable Bible scholar. Does that sound weird? Talented Bible scholar, like he's uh, spinning plates on sticks or something. Uh, but uh, the depth of his knowledge about not just uh, biblical literature, but about ancient history, about various religions other than the Judeo-Christian religion. Uh, It it just blows my mind. And uh, it's a great podcast. It's fun to listen to. Even though he's this extremely intelligent scholar, he's also this kind of quirky, fun guy at the same time. And often when he reads questions from listeners, he'll do so in a variety of kind of entertaining accents. And uh, Robert M. Price is also uh, an H.P. Lovecraft fan like myself. And every once in a while, he'll sneak in a passing reference to uh, Lovecraft that might go over the heads of uh, the average uh, listener who's um, not a sick, twisted uh, Lovecraft uh, fanatic like myself. 
Um, yeah, but thanks uh, to Crocoduck for uh, turning me on to the uh, Bible Geek podcast. All right. But please finish listening to this podcast before you go and listen to that one. <laughs> now I've got the Bible Geek podcast theme in my head. It's kind of like Robert M. Price speaking over electronic dance music. It's time for the Bible Geek. I'm that geek. Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price. Postmodern, deconstructed, superpowered demigod. That's a hell of a jingle. That's better than uh, my generic iTunes loop. Half Dome, it's called. It's probably meant for like uh, sports shows or something like that. All right, but down to business. So I think I have some mea culpas to offer, some corrections to make. I got to tell you, I was initially pretty proud of last week's episode, uh, the one I creatively entitled Pyramid Slaves and Statue Humping. Um, But then I realized after the fact, it was kind of peppered with mistakes and uh, the mixing could have been better. So after I uploaded it, I neurotically ran around and corrected some of the mistakes And I also remixed the instrumentation, and then I re-upped it. Uh, So just so you know, so if you downloaded that episode early and you noticed that the music is kind of drowning out my voice, you could probably delete that episode and then either re-download it or try streaming it again, and you might get a better quality version of it. But what I'm more concerned with even more so than sound quality, are some of the um, factual errors in the podcast. Well, actually, I think there was only one big one, and it it wasn't, well, technically it was a factual error, but uh, it wasn't intentional. I just uh, misspoke. Maybe somewhere towards the middle of the podcast, I was speaking about the emergence of Israel, and I accidentally said 2nd century BCE, when I should have said uh, 2nd millennium BCE. Big difference there. Obviously, the Israelites are older than uh, two centuries before the birth of Christ. Um, So I just wanted to clear that up. I'm so afraid of putting uh, misinformation out there into the kind of psychic bloodstream. So I quickly went back. I edited the word 2nd century out, re-recorded myself saying 2nd millennium, and... uh, Like I already said, I remixed some stuff and I re-uploaded it. Okay. Uh, What other errors were in there? This this is kind of uh, trivial in comparison. But I mentioned, and to to my credit, I said I was kind of just giving a rough estimate by memory. But I was saying that, obviously, the, uh, the Giza pyramids aren't the only pyramids in Egypt, but those are those are the big iconic pyramidal uh, structures or monuments that we think of when we think of Egypt in the pyramids. But uh, I said altogether there was something like roughly 150 pyramids. But after the fact, I went back and looked and uh, varying sources give different amounts, but it's all the same ballpark. Some say that as of 2008, there's been 135 pyramids discovered. Uh, some sources say 138 pyramids. Uh, the lowest estimate I saw was 118, but I guess I shouldn't um, whip myself too hard. I wasn't too far off, okay, and I did admit I was uh, giving a rough estimate. 
and here's my neurotic side uh, showing through. I, I think I also use the words dissertation and recant partially out of context. All right, mea culpa. So I think that's it for the uh, corrections. So originally I was going to dedicate this episode to Satan. Well, not dedicate it to Satan, dedicate it to the topic of Satan. Um, but I wanted to kind of get all my proverbial ducks in a row and present that in kind of a mini audio documentary uh, format. So I think what I'll do today is just read a few news stories. And obviously I love to hear my own voice, so I'll comment on them as well. So first up, I have a story about chimpanzees. Chimpanzees might not have much to do with religion, but I suppose in a roundabout way they do as it uh, pertains to uh, the topic of evolution, uh, etc. Which is actually why I want to talk about this story. I've often mentioned chimpanzees on the show when talking about morality. How believers, uh, especially fundamentalists, believers, I guess, will try to say that our morality comes from God. And it's as if they always think that's like checkmate and win. Oh yeah, well, where did morals come from? Whereas I always, I've always thought that it's, it's pretty plain and apparent that morality could easily be explained away as a evolutionary byproduct. And I think that because of evolution, we're kind of a, an inherently morally mixed bag. We, we seem to be wired with a capacity for compassion and empathy. We seem to be wired to be social and cooperative creatures. But at the same time, we also seem to be wired for tribalism and violence. And I often use our closest animal cousins, the chimpanzee, as an example of this. You know, I think the the old kind of uh, stereotype or image of the chimpanzee is that they were these mostly kind of silly and benevolent creatures. Um, and then Jane Goodall, a long-time uh, chimp researcher, who it's obviously, you know, when you see her, any of the documentaries uh, she's made about chimpanzees, when you see her talk about them, the deep affection and reverence and respect she has for these animals but uh, to her horror, at one point, she started to notice a dark side to uh, chimp behavior. And even that they were capable of things like infanticide and, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, murder, where you would have roving like a roving troop of uh, chimps from one group chase down a lone male from another group and, and kill him. Um, so in a way, this article is kind of late to the party because it basically discusses that. But I thought it was novel in a way because uh, I can't remember the last time I saw an article about chimp behavior, you know, make the, uh, make the news. And, and since it kind of uh, echoes what I often say about uh, chimpanzees when I use them as a way to kind of point to uh, the evolutionary roots of our own morality, or at least that's how I see it. I think morality is kind of an emergent uh, property, uh, a kind of byproduct of, of the evolutionary process, because at times I think it pays to be, it pays for social creatures to be compassionate and cooperative. Often we see chimps grooming each other, uh, picking bugs off one another, sharing maternal responsibilities, even uh, showing um, behavior that seems to 
suggest uh, sympathy, solidarity, empathy, things like that. But at the same time, sometimes I guess you could say there's an evolutionary benefit to being tribal or, or violent, uh, as morally offensive as that might sound to our ears. And, and it, uh, just to say it, it, it bothers me. Um, I don't like to think that uh, to some degree we're wired for violence, but that, that seems to be where the evidence points. So when we hear about or see, uh, you know, a group of chimpanzees beating a lone individual to death from an, from another troop, it shocks our moral sensibilities, and it, I'm glad it does. Um, it's not the type of thing I would want to become a nerd to. I'm glad I'm able to uh, sympathize and empathize with other creatures. But, but I guess from a really kind of crude, practical perspective, you could argue that being a tribal, territorial, violent towards members of an outside group helps preserve the integrity or the safety of uh, one's own group. Um, but of course, with us, you know, the chimpanzee is our closest relative, but we have an ability, a deep ability for self-awareness, for self-reflection. And, and they, to some much lesser degree, I'm sure chimps are probably self-aware to some degree. And they're even, in a lot of ways, moral or display what scientists would call proto-ethics, you know, what seems to be examples of morality and ethical behavior in animals, uh, non-human animals, because, of course, we're animals, too. But I'm, I'm hoping that our greater capacity for self-awareness and um, moral reasoning will help us as a species avoid that dark side that we see in uh, our close uh, primate cousins like chimpanzees. But I guess that, I guess that's wishful thinking in a way because all you have to do is turn on the news. I mean, like now we have ISIS in the news. We have human beings beheading other human beings either because you know they don't like the politics or the religion of another nation or whatever. Um, and war is basically as old as uh, our species. And even though I don't take the Bible literally, I've, I've talked about on the show before how I'm kind of deeply moved by the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, there's something about the idea of the first two brothers and one striking the other one dead in you know, a, a fit of anger or jealousy or whatever, and then the dead sibling's blood crying out to God, the God whose existence I strongly doubt, but still, symbolically, it's a very powerful story. But I think that human problem that the story of Cain and Abel illustrates is one that's always been with us, the violent impulse, the, the impulse... Uh, towards negative emotions like uh, jealousy, etc. But I hope that as a species, maybe someday we'll be able to outgrow this stuff. We'll realize that we don't need to kill the outsider. We don't need to resort to barbarism. Will we ever get there? I hope we do, but I, I don't know. But at, anyway, here I am uh, waxing philosophical, and uh, I'm supposed to be talking about this uh, chimp story. There was one more thing that uh, I kind of teased you, didn't I? You thought I was about to read. There was one more thing I wanted to uh, discuss, though, about chimps before I, I get into that article. 
And that said, I wonder if uh, one of the reasons why people are disturbed by human evolution, other than the way it uh, challenges their religious beliefs, is that people specifically don't like the idea of having evolved from uh, apes or sharing a common ancestor with apes. When you look at an ape, I think, uh, especially a chimpanzee, they're almost like, and this might sound too harsh because uh, I think they can be cute, they can be endearing, but in a way they're almost like a grotesque parody of ourselves. Um, They're different than us, but they're too similar or close to us for comfort. And uh, they're kind of, like I said, they're kind of like these bestial parodies of ourselves. And, and we almost seem to be viscerally repulsed by that. And I think that's how a lot of people reacted when Darwin's theory of evolution first broke. I think there were a lot of people in the Victorian era who were deeply offended and put off by the idea that we would be related to these creatures. But at the same time, I think the reason why they got so kind of defensive or resentful about it is because it's hard to deny when you look at them um, that we have a shared ancestry. Of course, we didn't evolve from chimps. You know, um, evolution is more like a branching tree than a linear line. Uh, we share a common ancestor with them, but we are closely related, 99 point something uh, shared DNA. And of course, if you go back far enough, I mean, all mammals are related. All mammals share some common ancestor. You go back even further, all life has a common ancestor. I've, I've long been fascinated by Pacaya, I think it is. It's like this rudimentary flatworm with eye spots and uh, is supposedly the first uh, vertebrate creature. It's uh, basically the common ancestor of us all, of all vertebrates at least. But I I find the older I get uh, and the more I get acclimated to being a non-believer and the more I get acclimated to um, some of the more disturbing aspects of uh, evolution, etc., the less I'm bothered by our close relationship to... uh, some of our less-than-flattering animal cousins. Um, But anyway, I'll I'll read some of the article. It's from the HuffPost, and it's entitled, Chimps May Look Cute, But Controversial New Study Says They're Natural-Born Killers. And as as someone commenting on the article said, uh, it it is odd that they're calling this a controversial new study when Jane Goodall told us years and years ago that this kind of dark behavior was... um, sometimes exhibited by chimpanzees. But anyway, I'll continue reading. Chimpanzees can be cute and cuddly, but they're also capable of murderous violence. They wage war against their own kind, savagely maiming and even killing their neighbors and their neighbors' offspring. Such behavior is rare among mammals. In fact, humans, who are more closely related to chimps and bonobos than any other animal, are the only other mammals known to inflict this level of lethal violence against others of their own species. What causes the violence in chimps? And can they teach us anything about our own propensity to wage war? Some research has suggested that chimps are inherently peaceful and that they turn violent only because of human interference. One landmark study conducted in the 1960s showed that chimps in Tanzania's Gombe National Park 
began attacking each other only after Jane Goodall and other primatologists began handing out bananas. When the banana feeding stopped, so did the violence, a fact that led some researchers to conclude that we are to blame for Chimp's violent behavior. But other experts disagree. This includes the 30 researchers involved in a newly published study of Chimp violence data in more than 420 combined years of observation in 18 chimpanzee communities. The study suggests that chimpanzees in the wild are inherently violent and that human interference has nothing to do with the mayhem. The Nagogo group of chimpanzees in Uganda, for instance, turned out to be the most violent group of chimpanzees there is. Michael Wilson, a University of Minnesota anthropologist and the co-author of the new study, told the New York Times. And that's despite the fact that those chimps live in a pristine habitat, seemingly untouched by humans. According to Wilson and his collaborators, aggression evolved in chimps because it gives the animals a reproductive advantage over more chilled-out chimps. Among the 150 or so chimp murders analyzed in the new study, males were the aggressors more than 90% of the time, and most of the killings were intercommunity attacks in which a group of chimps ganged up on individual chimps from another community. The researchers said that these findings support the hypothesis that chimps fight over groups to gain territory, mates, and food. Chimpanzees often fragment into temporary parties that travel and forage independently within their community's home range, Arizona State University anthropologist Joan Silk, who was not involved in the study, wrote in an editorial published in conjunction with the new study. When parties of males encounter single individuals from other communities, they sometimes launch brutal assaults that leave victims gravely wounded or dead. So there you have it. That basically echoes uh, what I was already saying. So it seems like they didn't really shed much new light on the matter. They're kind of echoing what's already uh, been known, except maybe the point of contention was whether or not human interference uh, had to do with this kind of dark and violent chimp behavior, which seems like wishful thinking on the part of primatologists to me. Um, is whether or not bananas are being handed out really going to make that extreme a difference that uh, the handing out of bananas could lead to infanticide and, uh, for lack of a better word, murder. Um, I, I know that animals will often fight over resources, but come on. Um, I think the easier explanation, the more common sense explanation, is that it's... Uh, behavior that's inherent to their species. But chimps, disturbingly like us, except shorter, hairier, and with even uglier feet. Uh, but it, it's funny, they mentioned something about 90% of the attacks being um, perpetrated by males. It, it's funny because um, on a positive note, and I've talked about this on the show too, there's bonobos, uh, sometimes called pygmy chimps. They're almost identical to chimpanzees, except kind of smaller and cuter, and very different in the sense, I mean, both uh, socially and behaviorally, uh, because they live in matriarchal groups and they solve conflicts, usually not with violence, but with sex, and often engaging in same-sex relations. So sometimes the chimps can be dark and disturbing, but at least we have the bonobos to cheer us up. <laughs> when we hear about one of those stories. Um, and of course, there's that awful story. I forget the woman's name right now off the top of my head. Was it Charlotte 
something, I forget. There's that story a few years back about the woman who was nearly killed by Travis the Chimp. Um, there was this kind of, I don't know if she was middle-aged, borderline, elderly, or whatever, but there was this woman who had a pet chimp named Travis. She had him for years. He may even have done commercial work at some point or something like that. Um, but she had this pet chimp, and he got up into a tree and was trying to get him to come down. So I think she asked her neighbor to help her get the chimp down. And uh, no pun intended, but the chimp went bananas. Um, I shouldn't be making jokes. This is a really awful story. But I think before this, a lot of us wouldn't even think that chimps were capable of this level of damage. Even me knowing about um, the darker side of Jane Goodall's research. I I didn't know chimps were capable of this. Um, The chimpanzee basically bit and tore with its hands and uh, ended up uh, removing the woman's hands completely. Um, basically literally tore her face off. I'm not sure with, with its teeth or with its, uh, or with its powerful hand-like paws, but I, I think they thought the woman was dead at first when the, the woman called 911 to say that her pet chimp or whatever killed her, uh, friend. Obviously she used the word killed. She thought she was dead. And so, the woman was left basically handless, faceless, and blind. And I think the she did undergo eventually a, a face transplant. And I guess there's a scientific explanation for why the chimp targeted uh, the face and hands. I guess in the wild, male chimps will go after the hands of their uh, opponents because, you know, that's what they use as weapons. So, you know, take out the... Uh, your adversary's weapons, they'll go after the face, probably because there's all the, uh, you know, the sensory organs or whatever. Um, and also in, in the wild, they'll often go for the genitals. They'll rip off the, the uh, their adversary's uh, genitals because those are the reproductive organs. And, uh, and I guess, well, to put it crudely, if you tear someone's junk off, you don't have to worry about them being sexual competition. Yeah, so dark stuff, definitely a far cry from um, like the old footage of like a, a baby chimp wearing garanimals and pedaling a uh, tricycle around or whatever. Um, but all right, enough about those hairy rogues. How about another story? Um, from one disturbing story to another, except the, uh, the ape displaying disturbing behavior in this story is uh, human. <laughs> Okay, and I'll read this from the Huffington Post. And from the dark side of chimps, we uh, move to the dark side of Mormonism. So, judge cites Hobby Lobby to excuse fundamentalist Mormon child labor testimony. And if, you, if you're not familiar with uh, Hobby Lobby, I've talked about it a couple of times on the show. Hobby Lobby is a kind of arts and crafts uh, chain store that's run by a uh, fundamentalist conservative or conservatives, plural, I'm not sure. But there's a landmark case where where the Supreme Court sided with Hobby Lobby. The case was about that Hobby Lobby didn't want to have to provide insurance to their workers that would cover certain kinds 
of uh, contraception, specifically abortifacients, I think. And even though everyone was saying, you know, this is a slippery slope, man, I think the Supreme Court ended up um, uh, siding with Hobby Lobby. And this might be a case where, as to be expected, you know, it's that decision has kind of backfired. But I'll uh, read a bit. Less than three months after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg warned about the widespread repercussions of the Supreme Court's majority decision in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, a federal judge in Utah has cited the controversial ruling in his decision to excuse a member of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from testifying in a child labor investigation. Since 2012, the Department of Labor has been investigating the Mormon sect over allegations that church leaders ordered children to be removed from school to harvest pecans. Or is it a pecan? I don't know. I say pecans. <laughs> but then again, I have an absurd New England accent. Uh, on a <laughs> way, <clears throat> ordered children to be removed from school to harvest pecans on a uh, private ranch without pay for up to eight hours a day, which is horrible, but now I'm neurotically focused on whether it's pecan or pecan. But anyway... Uh, church member Vir Virgil Steed refused to answer basic questions about the investigation in, Janu in a January deposition on the grounds that divulging information related to the church violated his religious vows. Last Thursday, U.S. District Judge David Sam ruled that Steed could not be forced to answer the investigators' questions about the Mormon sect or its leaders. Citing the Supreme Court's June ruling in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, which allows closely held corporations to opt out of providing contraception coverage for their employees based on religious objections, Sam ruled that forcing Steed to answer the Labor Department's questions would place a substantial burden on his religious beliefs. And I think this is the judge's words. It is not for the court to inquire into the theological merit of the belief in question, Sam wrote. The determination of what is a religious belief or practice is more often than a difficult and delicate task. However, the resolution of that question is not to turn upon a judicial perception of the particular belief or practice in question. Religious beliefs need to be acceptable, logical, consistent, or comprehensible to others in order to merit First Amendment protection. Sam's decision reversed an earlier ruling by U.S. Magistrate Judge Evelyn First, who had issued an order to compel Steed to answer questions. Ugh. This is one of those stories that gets my uh, blood boiling. Right there he's talking about how a religious belief should be acceptable or logical or, or whatever. What's logical or acceptable about the idea of forcing children to do grueling labor or any type of labor especially when they should be in school what's logical or acceptable about that and i know this is probably going to sound mean or judgmental but whenever i hear an atrocious story uh you know that offends my moral sensibilities having to do it do with mormonism and i know there's plenty of decent and good mormons out there um and often the trouble we see with Mormons has to do with these kind of fundamentalist sects, kind of like how the most egregious behavior displayed by Christians is usually by fundamentalists. And of course, um, we can split hairs about whether Mormons are Christians. I would say they're Christian in the sense that they believe in Jesus Christ, but we also know they hold some uh, 
very strange beliefs um, that contradict mainstream Christian theology, and Mormonism is also a relatively young religion. But whenever I hear about one of these stories, I, I go back to the roots of Mormonism. I think about Joseph Smith, the magic plates in upstate New York, supposedly engraved with a language called Reformed Egyptian, which archaeologists and scholars don't even recognize as an actual language. And then think about, I think, is it the Book of Abraham? But uh, I think I talked about this on the show recently when... Joseph Smith had got his hands on a bunch of old Egyptian papyri, which referred to, uh, they were kind of -of run-of-the-mill funerary texts or rituals. And uh, I forget the word for the exact type of papyri, but I think it might have been circular and meant to go behind the head of the deceased, and it had, like, funerary text on it or whatever. But in uh, typical con man fashion... Joseph Smith tried to spin that this was the book of Abraham and not just your kind of standard standard ancient Egyptian religious uh, text. And I've also spoken about how I'm deeply offended by this whole idea of, um, well, the idea of Jesus appearing in the Americas after the uh, resurrection that's just absurd. That's actually somewhat amusing to me. But but where it gets offensive is when they try to usurp Native American culture and say that the uh, Native Americans are, that the Native Americans were really um, Israelites and, and things along that line. Uh, and I just think about the absurd origins of Mormonism, and I always lump it together in my mind with Scientology because they're both relatively new religions, although Scientology is a 20th century religion, Mormonism, uh, 18th century, uh, I'm sorry, I mean uh, 19th century, Um, and and both religions, to me, the products of con men. And I know sometimes maybe even uh, fellow non-believers an attempt at a fairness or decorum will refrain from calling Joseph Smith, uh, you know, a con man that it's resorting to ad hominem attacks or whatever. But he, I mean, he was either a con man or he was wildly deluded. Um, the magical plates, the, uh, trying to pass off, uh, ancient Egyptian texts as a revelation of his new religion or whatever trying to use this religion he made up as an excuse to sleep with um, the wives of his followers or whatever. Uh, I don't know. It just boggles the mind. It defies all reason. Like I said, nowadays, most you know mainstream Mormons, uh, uh, off, many people said they're some of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Um, kind of clean living, good natured. Uh, and here's an embarrassing confession I've made on the show before. Uh, how I absolutely love Christmas music. I love the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and also Mormons have done a lot of good uh, charity work and things like that. And I'll refrain from going on a tangent about uh, my feelings on missionaries, etc. And, you know, sure, missionaries will offer aid and relief to... Uh, 
people in need in other parts of the world. But as you probably guessed, eh, you know, that comes with a catch. I mean, I'm not saying they're going to withhold care if you don't accept their religion, but they're trying to spread their religion. Missionaries probably also, in part, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, are probably doing good for the sake of being good in a way. But they're also going, trying to spread their religion to peoples, you know, indigenous peoples who already have their own rich, age-old traditions. There's just something about that. Maybe it's hypocritical in a way because here I am, I'll bash, whether it's Christianity or, you know, Scientology, uh, Mormonism or whatever as being these man-made belief systems. But I have a deep reverence for uh, many other belief systems or traditions, especially those of indigenous people. And there's something inherently offensive to me about this idea of trying to replace the beliefs of an indigenous people with your own. And I should say that I think I heard on the Young Turks where they were discussing this story that there was a connection between this fundamentalist sect and uh, Warren Jeffs. Warren Jeffs is the cult leader, fundamentalist Mormon cult leader, who's currently in prison. Uh, he was having sex with girls as young as 12 years old and marrying off other young girls to uh, other uh, members of his uh, sect. And this might be the same sect, either that or there's a close connection there. But so there we have fundamentalist Mormons not only marrying off uh, young underage girls to lecherous old uh, men and excusing it with their religion, but now we have them pulling them out of school and making them uh, pick pecans or pecans. Uh, I don't know, man. I think all religions are a mixed bag in a way. You can probably find good and bad things in any religion, but what it all comes down to, to me, is that they're man-made and, uh, and exploiting or taking advantage of others in the name of your stupid man-made religion, it's grotesque to me. Um, but anyway, enough of that story. And friend of the show, who I mentioned at the uh, top of this episode, Buzzwigs, posted an article to the um, Weekend Out Facebook page. And it was in response to how, in passing, uh, in last week's episode, I had mentioned um, some scientists trying to explain uh, the plagues of the Exodus story. Um, and he, yeah, so he posted this article from The Telegraph, uh, and it's dated a while back, uh, but still a really interesting article. And I think I have, I've heard these theories before in uh, some TV documentaries, you know, m maybe like Nat Geo or the History Channel or something like that. But it's entitled, Biblical Plagues Really Happened, Say Scientists. The biblical plagues that devastated ancient Egypt in the Old Testament were the result of global warming and a volcanic eruption, scientists have claimed. And this uh, story is by Richard Gray. Uh, he's a science correspondent. Researchers believe they have found evidence of real natural disasters on which the ten plagues of Egypt, which led to Moses freeing the Israelites from slavery in the book of Exodus in the Bible, were based. But rather than explaining them as the wrathful act of a vengeful God, the scientists claim the plagues can be attributed to a chain of natural phenomena triggered by changes in the climate and environmental disasters that happened hundreds of miles away. 
they have compiled compelling evidence that offers new explanations for the biblical plagues, which can be outlined in a new series to be broadcast on the National Geographic channel on Easter Sunday. Hmm, maybe that's why it seemed familiar. Um, okay, because uh, I had skimmed some of the explanations in the article, but haven't read the... I'm reading it now with you guys. Um but, yeah, it's funny. I thought I remembered uh, seeing something really similar on National Geographic some years ago. Um, archaeologists now widely believe the plagues occurred at an ancient city of Pi Ramses on the Nile Delta, which was the capital of Egypt during the reign of Pharaoh Ramses II, who ruled between 1279 BCE and 1213 BCE. Oh, they're using BC. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to confuse you. Uh, BCE before Common Era. Uh, it's funny, that um, terminology, Common Era and Before Common Era, have been around for a long time, but they started being more widely used uh, not that long ago. I can remember reading history books and stuff growing up or watching historical documentaries. People always said B.C. and A.D., um, Before Christ and Anno Domini. Um but then all of a sudden, people, it seemed people started the favor both in uh, literature and on TV, the use of before BCE, before Common Era, and CE, Common Era. Um, so uh, talking about the rule of Ramses the Great, 1279 BC and 1213 BC. The city appears to have been abandoned around 3,000 years ago, and scientists claim the plagues could offer an explanation. Climatologists studying the ancient climate at the time have discovered a dramatic shift in the climate in the area occurred towards the end of Ramses II's reign. By studying stalagmites in Egyptian caves, they have been able to rebuild a record of weather patterns using traces of radioactive elements contained within the rock. They found that Ramses' reign coincided with a warm, wet climate. I'm so juvenile, I don't know why I just laughed at warm and wet. But then the climate switched to a dry period. Professor Augusto Magini, a paleoclimatologist at Heidelberg University's Institute of Environmental Physics, said Pharaoh Ramses II reigned during a very favorable climatic period. There was plenty of rain and his country flourished. However, this wet period <laughs> only lasted a few decades. After Ramsey's reign, the climate curve goes sharply downwards. There was a dry period, which would certainly have had serious consequences. That goes on to say rising temperatures could have caused the River Nile to dry up, turning the fast-flowing river that was Egypt's lifeline into a slow-moving and muddy watercourse. These conditions would have been perfect for the arrival of the first plague, which in the Bible is described as a Nile turning to blood. Uh, and, it, and he says, um, doctor, uh, and it says, Dr. Stephen Fugmacher, <laughs> a biologist at the Leibniz uh, Institute for, did I say that right? Anyway, Institute for Water Ecology and Inland Fisheries in Berlin, believes this description could have been the result of toxic freshwater algae. Oh, what I say last week, just going by memory. I said some scientists put forth the idea that the plague of the Nile turning to blood could have been explained by um, by um, red algae or some sort of bacteria or whatever. So uh, so I wasn't too far off. I think I might, I might have said bacteria, but it looks like they're talking about red algae. Oh, but then I'm right. Ha <laughs> ha. He said the bacterium known as burgundy blood algae or 
Oscillatoria rubensis, okay, is known to have existed 3,000 years ago and still causes similar effects today. He said it multiplies massively in slow-moving warm waters with high levels of nutrition, and as it dies, it stains the water red. So algae is technically a bacteria? I don't know. But either way, it looks like I'm right. Okay, okay. Um, the scientists also claim that the arrival of this algae set in motion the events that led to the second, third, and fourth plagues, frogs, lice, and flies. Frogs' development from tadpoles into fully formed adults is governed by hormones that can speed up their development in times of stress. The arrival of the toxic algae would have triggered such a transformation to force the frogs to leave the water where they lived. Oh, and what I say last week, that natural causes could have caused the uh, frogs to um, move onto the land en masse. Am I being unbearable with all this uh, bragging? All right, all right. But anyway, I want to thank uh, Buzzwigs for uh, posting that article. It seems, my friend, you have vindicated me. Um... But this isn't all about me. Hopefully you found this article edifying. Uh, Okay. But with that being said, I think I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, you can like the Facebook page. I'd like to see more of you guys do that. That would be awesome. And uh, maybe you can contribute to the conversation on the Facebook page like, like Buzzwigs does. And also, uh, you know, I keep talking about how I'm going to write a book. I'm going to create a website, blah, blah, blah. Well, I have been inching my way forward with the book. And uh, I just started getting my hands dirty with the website. I don't know how you can get your hands dirty with a website. Well, I'm speaking figuratively. I don't think pixels actually make your hands dirty. But uh, so my guess is the website will be done much sooner than the book will be finished. Um, But I'm hoping that... I'll have a link to a forum, you know, by the time the website's done. And uh, that will let people talk about the show and talk about uh, religion, atheism in general. So I'm working on it. And also you can uh, follow the show on Twitter. You can listen to the show on Stitcher. You can subscribe to the show through either iTunes or Podbean. If you're at Podbean and you feel generous, uh please feel free to donate to the show's upkeep using the PayPal widget. You can donate as little as 99 cents. And, you know, if a few of you guys do that, uh, they'll probably go a long way to helping cover uh, hosting costs and things like that. And I'm not necessarily talking about web hosting, although that will eventually be a concern when I get the uh, site up. But um, Podbean, uh, which is kind of the middleman, that's how I upload the show to uh, iTunes. And that's it's basically you need to host a feed somewhere in order for a podcast to work. I don't just directly upload episodes to iTunes. I host a feed. Um, my feed is hosted by Podbean. And then iTunes kind of retrieves the feed from Podbean, and that's how you guys get the newest episodes. And also, Stitcher uses the same feed as well. But I'm a bit of a sucker, and as the archives have continued to grow, I've kind of progressively upgraded my Podbean package. I think originally I might have been paying like $4.99 a month. Now it's like $19.95 or $19.99 a month or something like that. 
I think you can also uh, contribute to the show through uh, Patreon, too. I think you have to go to patreon.com. Well, if you want to contribute through Patreon, probably help if you went to patreon.com. And, uh, yeah, so you go to Patreon and do a search for Phil Albertelli or Philip Albertelli. I don't know why it doesn't come up when you do a search for The Weekend Out. Um, maybe it would help if I visited uh, Patreon more than twice <laughs> and I worked out some of this stuff. Let's see anything else. I, I think that's it. <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah, you can also check out the YouTube channel. But as always, thanks for listening. Uh, it means a lot. I appreciate it. And until next week, 